1: Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in classic aviation, and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers. Jean Batten Drive, Mount Maunganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old airplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. There's lots to see. Kids' parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, and a great cafe with excellent coffee. If you'd like to be involved with Classic Flyers, we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties, right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets. Currently, at the moment, we've got a Grumman Avenger being restored and a de Havilland single-seat FB5 Vampire. These things are all part of New Zealand's aviation history. It's a great place, and it's in a good location. Come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicflyersnz.com
0: Extended.
2: Hi, this is Peter Johnson from aerospace radio station Extended, and we bring you some of Europe's best guests.
0: He's he's been something of of an unsung hero of the American space programme,
2: outside those who have made it their business to become aficionados of it. News. Some people will call you mad. Some people will call you heroes. uh, uh, And everyone else is probably somewhere in that spectrum. It's it's an amazing project to, to pull together from literally from scratch.
0: And views. You've got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off and learn from that experience. And that's not an easy thing to do, Peter, learning from your own failure.
2: So why not give us a listen? If you want to hear about warbirds, aviation and the aerospace industry, Come over and
0: give us a visit. Aviation extended.co.uk. And remember, there's no E at the beginning of extended. Extended. The Wings Over New Zealand Show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Flight DC-3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC-3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC-3. Go to www.flightdc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. The following is another of the talks that was given at the Wigram Forum meet back in September 2019. And the speaker is Barry Lennox. The topic is the wartime atomic bombs. Here's Barry. For those of you who were here last year will remember Barry Lennox gave a really good talk on uh, command, Cayman, command, command helicopters. Um, and uh, this year he's uh, going to give us a talk on the atomic bombs at the end of World War Two. So over to Barry. Okay, afternoon. We're going
2: to cover quite a bit of ground here and uh, what I'll really cover is a little bit of ancient history, a little bit of bomb physics, um, some of the political and military considerations at the time and what was plan B if the Japanese hadn't surrendered and a few other things like that. Unfortunately, despite all the technology increases in the world that the previous speaker alluded to, the software developers still screw you over. Um, we've got a little, little interoperability problem here I prepared this slide with one version of um, a program, a different way, uh, and it uh, unfortunately some of the graphics don't come out most do, but some don't anyway, here we go at the end of World War II okay here's the missing, two missing pictures unfortunately you all know the, the story and the mythology correct? Einstein discovered E equals MC squared And our Lord Rutherford split the atom, correct? A little bit of of doubt there. No, not true, really. Uh, Actually, Einstein wasn't the first to discover E equals M C squared. There were some very famous and talented scientists uh, around the early 1900s who were tinkering around with this equivalence of mass and energy. Because. You may not think so, but they are very much the same thing. Einstein never actually wrote down E equals mc squared himself, it was first written down by another German physicist called, um, let me refer, um, Fritz He was the first chap. Einstein's claim was that he managed to get it into the theory of relativity. Okay, and that's a quite a complex subject for several months talking. Um, so, in fact, Einstein was a brilliant thinker, and his great specialty was the thought experiment. What happens if this happens? Uh, actually, he was a lousy mathematician. Two or three of his very good comrades uh, used to come along after Einstein and tidy up his mathematics because it was a real mess and it was kind of amateurish. So that is correct. And that's the cornerstone of nuclear weapons, of course. The energy is equal to the mass times c squared, which is the velocity of light. very large number, and if you square it, it becomes unimaginably large. Lord Rutherford, interesting and fascinating and very, very talented chap. Born in Roxburgh, educated in Marlborough, went to the States, and eventually ended up being the, um, the director of the Cavendish Lab in the 1920s and 1930s in Oxford. He did not split the atom. He did a lot of other things. He got a Nobel Prize in 1908 for discovering the general curve of decay of radioactivity he discovered radon, the radioactive gas he also discovered the alpha and beta particles okay. he's been immortalised on our hands up, have you seen one of these before? it's a hundred dollar note kind of rare uh, on the back there you'll find there's a picture of Rutherford his Nobel medal and also the curve of normalised curve of radioactive decay which comes in handy if somebody at a party says hey does anybody know the curve for radioactive decay you can pull out your hundred dollar eye and say ha there it is right there Um, Lord Rutherford was a very very talented chap he was also more more especially towards the period of time when he was a Cavendish director he was a very a very good director and mentor and had a number of PhD students under his Control, and he was extremely generous and kind to them. Two of them did split the atom. That's Cockroft and Walton in 1932, split the atom uh, deliberately and under control. Now that's this no big deal because in some ways because the atom splits itself. Ever since the universe started, any, at any element that's got a number of greater than 92 on the periodic table is splitting itself all the time. I'll uh, just give you an example of how active it is. If you imagine a, um, one gram of radium, which would be uh, probably the size of a couple of grains of rice, uh, is continually disintegrating at the rate of about a uh, hundred million per second. Okay, so it's happening all the time, radioactive decay, that's splitting the atom. However, Cockroft and Walton, under the direction of Lord Rutherford, split it deliberately knew exactly what they were doing. In that time, they discovered what Einstein and several others had thought as well. Here's a missing graphic. Sorry. (coughs) However, uranium-235, which is one of the isotopes of natural uranium, it's one of the rare ones. If you have a lump of uranium, it's no big deal. Uh, However, about one part in 140 is uranium-235 which is the fissionable isotope. Uh, what, what is happening in this fission is that if you have a, imagine a, uh, an atom of uranium-235, and along comes a neutron, which is of the right speed and under the right conditions, it will actually split in two. It becomes unstable, a little unstable, wobbly mass for a while, then it splits into two and most of the time it splits into um, krypton and barium, two quite separate elements and it throws out three neutrons on average it's actually random it is one of the most random things we know on the planet but that's the most typical thing so what you see there is a little amplifier if you can imagine it one neutron in you get three out now if you can persuade that to happen very very quickly in one small mass That's exactly what a nuclear fission reaction is. And it happens about 80 times. And the interesting thing is the mass on this side, which is the the original uranium atom and the neutron, does not equal the mass of the stuff on the other side, the stuff that's left over. There's a little tiny, tiny, tiny bit missing. It's called the binding defect or the binding energy. And it's 0.02 of an atomic mass unit, which is... Uh, as we might say, three quarters of five eighths of not much. Okay? <laughs> However, that's when E equals M C squared comes into play. Um, it's a mad race. When when this happens in an atomic weapon, it's a fantastic race. You want this division to happen as many times as possible because that increases the yield of the weapon. Okay? However, because of the temperature, it reaches about forty thousand degrees and massive pressure it starts to blow apart immediately of course once it blows apart to a certain point it's no longer a critical mass so the reaction stops and that happens in, uh, it's actually about uh, typically in the in the Hiroshima and Nagasaki weapons that division happens about 80 times and less, uh, it's actually about a hundredth of a microsecond that's one hundredth of a millionth of a second it's all over yeah, that's it, it's over However, the temperature in the meantime has reached 40 million degrees, there's a fantastic release of energy, particularly neutrons and gamma radiation, both of which are quite lethal in large quantities. Uh, So that fish in there is the most more. The one that's missing is the most common one, but it's not the only one. Other things can happen, but that's mainly what happens. don't have time to to cover all the background of the fission process. It was not known until about uh, 1920 uh... over 1930 and to the mid-35s uh, people learned a huge amount and well, I haven't got time to cover all that but it's interesting to note that most, or many of the scientists that were involved were refugees from Nazi Germany Enrico Fermi, Szilard, uh, a whole bunch of them uh... they, they were Jewish mainly and they saw the writing on the wall. So they escaped initially to England, and then later on to the United States. So um, Hitler's persecution of the Jews was really a massive own goal. If they had stayed in Germany, uh, it's possible they could have got a bomb first. So, of course, now E equals MC squared comes into play. Uh, The energy, the binding energy, which is that tiny, tiny, little piece of mass which is missing after a a fission reaction, is about 0.7 of a gram in this particular case, which is um, actually much less than a paperclip. However, when you multiply it by 3 times 10 to the power of 8 times 3 to the 10 to the power of 8 again, you end up with uh, 9 times 10 to the power of 13. Apologies, it's not in proper scientific notation. That's something the software has done to the slide as well. However, that is approximately uh, it's um, nine, 9 million billion joules, which is approximately 15,000 tonnes of TNT. Okay. So a little piece of mass, less than a paper clip, is approximately equivalent to 15,000 tonnes. Temperature reaches 40,000 degrees. Massive numbers of neutrons and gamma rays are emitted, all of which are extremely uh, lethal, actually, at a, at a certain distance. Anyway. Have you probably heard of this critical mass thing? And, and the image you may have is if we had a pile of uranium-235, or plutonium here, and we add just a little bit more, a whole lot will go bang. Well, it's not like that. The critical mass is not any one such thing. It depends on how pure the material is. How much has been refined? It depends on this volume to surface area ratio, and the best, of course, is a ball. If you imagine um, something like this, and if that was made from uranium, it would probably weigh about 10 or 15 kilograms. But it's not going to fission because the problem is too many of the neutrons are escaping; they're getting out from out to free space, and they're not doing what they should be doing. Whereas in a ball, they're They're more confined, of course, because the ratio of surface area to volume. The external tampers. Tampers are are great lumps of heavy metal that sit outside the fission material. And they tend to reflect their their neutrons back in and also they stop them escaping, basically. So it depends on all those things. And the tampers are very, very heavy metals. Uh, In the early stages of the the Project Manhattan, which explosive uh, nuclear weapon, they considered using gold and they went to, I think it was the US Treasury or whoever maintains the gold there and they said, any chance of getting 20 tonnes of gold? And they said, well, <laughs> yes, but when are we going to get it back? Well, <laughs> we wouldn't, wouldn't really get it back. <laughs> However, <coughs> it settled down and they used, there's other metals which also work, Rhenium is one, Rhenium was almost as expensive as gold. They settled with uh, uranium itself. That is U-238, which is non-fissionable, but it's a very heavy, fairly strongish metal, and it just slows down the escape of neutrons, so that we can get to about 80 fission activities, go okay, to increase the yield. Uh, we also need a, a critical source of neutrons to start this thing off at the right time. You don't want a stray neut- when you're, you're carrying it on an aircraft all the way to Japan. You don't want some stray neutron just coming along and, and setting the thing off. Um, that's, that's very critical. It has to be the neutron at the right time, the right number, and the right speed. Not too fast, not too slow. Sort of a Goldilocks uh, neutron, as it were. And a great deal of work went into a little, little tiny, tiny gadget. And it was called the urchin, or the gadget, or something like that. It was a little piece of foil about the size of your fingernail. It was a combination of polonium and beryllium. and uh, When they're, they're mixed intimately, has happened, they start emitting neutrons in very, very large numbers, and that's enough to trigger the whole reaction. Okay. However, the critical mass is in the range of about 15 to 200 kilograms, depending on all those factors. Plutonium, which is the only other fissionable thing we know of on the periodic table at the moment, is about a third of that. In fact, that, that ball there was about the size of the plutonium in the second bomb, which we'll cover shortly. That was the one that was dropped in Nagasaki. Okay. That's Little Boy. That was the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. Um, in the centre there, there was a six-inch gun barrel. That's about six foot long, and there was two... Two lumps of uranium 235, the one at the front, which is fixed right to the front of the bomb, was about the size of a, a can of coke. The other one at the other end, of the, the far end of the barrel, was a an equivalent mass, about so big, and it had a hole in the centre of it, so that when the cordite behind it was ignited, it blew it up the gun barrel at about three and a half thousand feet per second. The two mixed or the two come together, same time as that little urchin the source of neutrons was activated and we have a very large explosion. Uh, the core was 64, 64 kilograms of uranium only about 5 kilograms fissioned before it started to blow itself to pieces and then the reaction stops however 0.7 of a gram and that's again you get that massive release of energy because of E equals mc squared uh, the fusing, that, oh, incidentally the The bomb itself weighed about 10,000 pounds. Most of that mass was the temper for heavy, heavy layers of metal holding it all together. When it was dropped there was four fusing systems. (coughs) The first was a 15 second clockwork timer which was initiated when it started its drop from the aircraft. A lanyard pulled out it started a 15 second clockwork timer. There was a second fuse which was a barometric fuse set for six and a half thousand feet. It then armed the the last stage which is actually you can just see them The little antennas at the back there they're basically radar altimeters, there was four of them fitted if two agreed out of the four the final detonator was fired uh, the bags of cordite were ignited and the two pieces of uranium come together and that's exactly what happened Um, yeah, those two graphics you can see there. Um, <laughs> one was a picture in before and after. Unfortunately, it sort of hasn't worked out. Um, when you see a picture of Hiroshima taken shortly after this, you'll often see a, a large building standing there. I can see it here perfectly. Uh, it, it's kind of damaged, but it's basically intact. You've probably seen it in pictures of Hiroshima. Yeah, you might ask, and all around it, the the ground is just nothing, levelled. You might ask, how come that building stood? It was actually built in about 1935, and it was the Hall of Industrial Promotion. And it just so happened the Japanese had started to learn about earthquakes. And they probably realised the same thing happened to our Napier about the same time. So that building was built particularly strong, and while it's absolutely much shattered it's more or less intact unlike the rest of the city it's still there today they've they put a fence around it you can see a picture of it later on it's preserved as a monument to to this and that again we have a missing graphic unfortunately however the problem was with uranium it's incredibly difficult to separate uranium 235 from natural uranium it took years of very hard work and a huge amount of money. And it's not a trivial exercise. So there was only ever going to be enough uranium-235 for one bomb. So what to do? Uh, fortunately, a very clever chemist called Robert um, um, Glenn Seaborg had discovered plutonium a couple of years beforehand, which is equally fissionable, though it's quite different. It's also much easier to produce, but it's still not trivial. You're not going to do it in your, in your garage. Uh, however, it was available, becoming available in reasonably large quantities. So, why wouldn't that work? Well, there's a big problem. Um, we can't go into all the details, it's quite complex, but uh, polonium, uh, sorry, plutonium is a very, very fast reactor. And if you tried the same trick, the thing would start reacting as soon as the two masses come together and it would be basically a damp squib that would, would detonate still, but it would be messy and it's a very, very low yield. So that caused an enormous amount of head scratching for a while and a huge amount of original research, which was unique at the time. So how it works is this. You've got these uh, sort of orange-shaped segments built around that. That was basically the core of plutonium, that size. That's not That's plastic. It's okay. <coughs> However, around the outside here we've got four detonators, and then there's TNT, and the, you can see the shock wave when the TNT detonates. It becomes semicircular, and some very clever chemists worked out if you put a, a little package of slow explosive in the middle, it corrects that shock wave. Instead of being concave like that, it now becomes convex. And it hits another batch of even faster explosive, So now the shock wave, instead of going outwards, is now compressing. So there was 32 of those things built around that. So they're all detonated at the same exact same nanosecond. So the shock wave compressed this ball of plutonium to a point where it becomes supercritical and detonated. Once again, it had a tiny little neutron emitter in the centre which was crushed and started to emit the neutrons. Um, The the explosive engineering was uh, quite amazing at the time. It took uh, several guys with PhDs in thermodynamics, energetic materials and a whole bunch of other scientists to come up with that. Also the detonators uh, were rather special. You can't use an ordinary detonator because it's only accurate to about a thousandth of a second, which is utterly hopeless. The detonators were quite a special uh, electronic device called a bridge wire te- uh, detonator, and they they were groundbreaking and absolutely new at the time. So, there was a huge amount of new technology went into the Nagasaki weapon. However, was it going to work? Nobody knew. They were pretty sure that the uranium bomb would work because they'd had a pile going and they were just adding uranium to it. And they saw the neutron count was starting to really go quite ballistic. They said, hey, that'll work, so we'll stop that. They were pretty sure the uranium bomb would work quite happily. This one, nobody knew. There was too much new engineering. There was too much hope, guessing. So what do you do? You have a test. That's exactly what they did. They had a test at a place called Trinity. Uh, which is in the middle of the New Mexico desert. And and on the... um, 5.29 in the morning on July 16th, 1945, uh, they fired this device off as a test, and it worked. And the yield was quite large. It was equivalent to about 22,000 tonnes of TNT. So it worked. There you can see the... um, sort of the internal structure you can see these 32 blocks with a mixtures of high low and very fast explosive and the little, the little red tiny core of plutonium in the centre it worked there's um, that was taken the afternoon of the explosion that's the picture that was a hundred foot steel tower because the weapon was mounted on a 100 foot steel tower, which is quite solid. Um, so there's not a great deal left of it. That's still there, basically, in the ground at the moment. The two people there you may or may not know. The civilian was Robert Oppenheimer, who was the uh, civilian scientist in charge of this, a doctorate with quite a few degrees in physics. The chap in uniform is uh, General Leslie Groves. Uh, he was fond of donuts and coffee. You can trying to see that. <laughs> he was also a uh, very hard driving go get him go-get-em-don't-mess-with-me type of general. He was selected because he had a history of getting things done. He actually just before the beginning of World War II, he had built the Pentagon or at least he had managed with the building of the Pentagon. It was built on time on budget, which is no minor task. Uh, nobody messed with General Groves. He uh, when he was appointed to the job he said, I don't want to work with a bunch of scientists they're all they're all mad he said, they're all they're all a bunch of long head, pointy heads he said, they don't know nothing however um, they knew enough so and Oppenheimer and Groves got on but it was a very tense relationship but they both needed each other Okay. Incidentally, um, while we're not terribly sure how the names of Little Boy and Fat Man come about, there's a number of folk who say, "Uh, we believe it was called after (laughs) (laughs) us. That's documented. Whether it's true or not, I, I have no clue. And you probably wouldn't want to ask General
3: Groves that.
2: Okay. so when you've got this new fantastic new weapon, and you briefed the, uh, the president and a few other people in America. They're going to say, "Well, oh gee, now you've got this new weapon. What are we going to do with it?" And I said, "Well, we've got to have a target." So they had a committee, and they came up with a. They came up with the targets. The targets were chosen because of their uh, the military importance, to some extent. But also they were chosen because they were one of the, some of the few f- cities still left in Japan that weren't bombed, because the 29th uh, U.S. Air Force was, was frantically bombing Germany. They bombed 67 cities almost back into nothing and killed uh, 300 350,000 Japanese people, military and civilian. So there was only about seven or eight cities still left with bombing, and these were chosen secondarily then because of their and military considerations. So the first was Hiroshima, Nagata, Kokura, and Kyoto. Uh, Kyoto, as it happens, tends to be kind of like uh, the cultural home of Japan. Okay? It's full of shrines and temples. Uh, it's a huge amount of culture, history. And Henry Stimson, who was the Secretary of State, went to the president, President Truman, and said, look, you know, I'm not happy bombing Kyoto. It's a beautiful city. It's the home of Japan and uh, and all that. Uh, So they said, okay, we'll find another one. So Nagasaki was put in place of Kyoto. It was their unlucky day, really. Uh, Also, I've noted Hiroshima was one of the few Japanese cities that had few Allied prisoner of war camps. Quite a lot of the others had large numbers of prisoners of war, American prisoners of war, which they they preferred not to uh, drop the weapon on them. We were in Kyoto about three months ago, and it is indeed—it's a beautiful city, and it's, uh, it's full of history. And it would have been a, a real shame to bomb it. Um, while we we're there, we, we learnt just a little. By the way, it's full of temples and shrines. I said, "Well, what's the difference between a temple and a shrine?" Well, actually, they're exactly the same, except temples are buddhists and the shrines belong to the Shinto religion. So now you you've learnt something if you didn't know that now 64,000 dollar question did they have to use the bomb? maybe not it was very controversial Uh, many of the scientific community who are working in Los Alamos on the project and also some politicians in America were rather nervous about using it Uh, Churchill knew about it and he was all in favour of it yeah great, how many more you got? Uh, uh, Truman was was in two minds. His predecessor of course Roosevelt died very shortly before that. Uh, he was in favour of it. Truman was of a mixed mind but in the end he was he persuaded himself that it was actually going to save lives. What were the other options? Continue aerial bombardment. Uh, said the uh, US Air Force had already bombed 67 cities killed approximately 300 to 350,000 Japanese. Uh, sadly it didn't seem to be making much impact. It certainly had a no impact whatsoever on the Japanese military. It has seemed to have limited impact on the Japanese civilians. Uh, they just carried on. Uh, so that was certainly discussed, but it was discarded. The next option was to simply blockade Japan, uh, put a blockade around the whole country, and starve them into submission. Uh, Japanese. Uh, land at the time was uh, they had no natural resources their food was becoming quite scarce It would have worked however the allied supreme command wanted to bring this war to an end relatively quickly and it would have been it would have been as inhumane as anything else just letting the whole nation starve arrange a demonstration of the weapon Uh, that was seriously talked about for a little while however the, the military people were not keen on that they said well gee you know." if we have a demonstration and it doesn't work we're going to look pretty stupid so that was uh, dismissed there's no doubt Japan did want to surrender Uh, there didn't seem to be any serious argument about that however surrender to the Japanese did not mean the same as surrender to the western world the Japanese surrender was they wanted to preserve the emperor emperor system Uh, they wanted to just basically stop fighting say sorry and carry on as normal. The Allies said no, no way, that's going to happen. The surrender has to be absolute, it has to be total, we will restructure Japan, we will change your society, we will deal with a very serious issue of war crimes. The war crimes tribunals were starting all around Europe at the time and they said we're dealing with uh, war criminals in Europe, we will be dealing with your war criminals as well. (coughs) So surrender meant different things. The final plan was to invade Japan, which was called Operation Downfall, there were two sub-operations. The first was Olympic, was to go into Kyushu, which is the southern island of Japan, with 800,000 troops. And a bit later on was Coronet, which was to attack the larger middle island of Japan, Honshu, with about one and a quarter million troops five months later. The, uh, the death toll was going to be enormous. Nobody knows how big. But uh, Operation, uh, what was the first one? Um, Olympic. Olympic was going to attack here, the bottom part. They were going to take the bottom one-third of Kyushu. And then, because it had the airfields and facilities on it, that was going to be used as a staging post to attack up here in the Kanto Plains around Tokyo, which is Operation Coronet. Nobody knows how big the death toll was going to be. It was going to be the biggest invasion fleet ever assembled. It had 43 aircraft carriers, 24 battleships, and 400 destroyers and similar vessels. Mainly from the US, but also including some Royal Navy carriers and battleships. The Americans also were planning to use chemical weapons. They were going to use VX, nerve agent. They had large amounts of it, and they were producing it by the tonne almost every week. And the reason for that is the Japanese had a, a favourite habit of going into caves and underground bunkers. VX, the nerve agent, is heavier than air, so it will flow down and, and, and work there. <coughs> Incidentally, Operation Coronet, which was up into Tokyo a few months later, would have involved all nations, or all Western nations, including New Zealand we were planning on sending quite large numbers to support that. And no doubt, I think there'll be people alive today who wouldn't be alive uh, because your fathers or your grandfathers would have been involved in this and it would have been very, very ugly. You've got to consider also the deaths that were occurring on the way to Japan. As the Americans and the Allies fought their way up through the Marianas Islands, uh, Taurai, Pelu, Okinawa, Iwo Jima, Manila, the death toll was becoming enormous. The closer they got to Japan, the more vicious the fighting was, and the higher the death toll. The estimated deaths for a full invasion of Japan ranged between one and four million. I've seen some very recent figures put together by the Yale War School in America, and they they seem to suggest it would be probably less than a million, but luckily we don't know. Okay, the problem was the Japanese, uh, the cabinet. The cabinet was, in theory, part military and part civilian. However, in practice, the military called all the shots. There's no doubt about that. General Anami had said, there must be no surrender. We can sur- inflict severe losses and we'll be able to pull victory from defeat. The army will never surrender. That was 15 minutes after Nagasaki was bombed. So the guy's a bit of a wishful thinker. He was also a bit of a fanatic. Um, He committed suicide a few days later uh, because Japan was actually talking about surrender which was completely untenable to him. Field Marshal Hata was somewhat more realistic and he had a pretty good plan. He said we can never defeat the USA but we can make it impossible for them to defeat us. Uh, Despite the losses that were there. General Hata was in charge of a southern district which included Hiroshima. He had 400,000 troops under his command, and he had, he had very, uh, very good defences around the city. There's no doubt they would have inflicted extremely heavy casualties on U.S. or invading forces. And the geography of Japan uh, made it fairly obvious what the Americans were going to do. The Japanese had worked it out quite correctly exactly what the Americans are going to do there was no leak of intelligence it's just the geography of Japan is limited there's only so many options the attack was expected to take place in Kyushu, which is quite correct the Japanese plan was to slowly withdraw back to Hiroshima which was quite uh, quite well defended, inflicting massive US deaths by kamikaze you've all heard of kamikaze uh, have you heard of Operation Kitsugo? you heard of it? It was a—it's um, quite complex, and a, I've got a full copy of the plan here. But it's—it's it's a massive defence plan, all based around uh, national suicide. In effect, uh, they had—they had, they had 10,000 aircraft, Kamikaze aircraft. They had about 5,000 Kamikaze boats. They were training housewives with sharpened bamboo stakes to hide in shops, buildings. Uh, Around the corner, and they—they were clearly directed to take at least one American with them. Uh, Children and old people were making petrol bombs and being trained to throw them. Uh, The Japanese were dug in extremely hard, very hard to winkle out with conventional weapons. That's why the Americans were leaning towards uh, the nerve agent. It's doubtful—if maybe, maybe not. We'll never know. The politicians would have approved that. However. Um, both America and Japan had not signed the Geneva Convention so they were actually free to use it if they chose to do so but um, Prime Minister, I think it was Prime Minister, made this statement uh, the sooner the Americans come the better, 100 million die proudly Japan was finished as a war-making nation but uh, she was not military finished, it was more important not to lose face than hundreds or hundreds of thousands or millions of lives and the people concurred in silence without protest. protest to continue it was no longer a question of Japanese military thinking it was an aspect of Japanese culture and psychology so the whole intent of Ketsugo was to cause enough casualties to American forces uh, they knew the Achilles heel of Western societies they knew very well that if the USA public Uh, become aware of say half a million or half a million American boys being killed they would probably say uh, enough is enough and they would probably sue for a negotiated peace which would be favourable to Japan Kitsuga, the Japanese planned for at least a million Americans to die They were also trying to get the Russians uh, to help with this negotiated peace however it didn't work out too well. The Russians were um, playing a very, very cunning and double game. In fact, they declared war on Japan. They went through Manchuria like a a steam train, and uh, they were heading towards the northern island of Hokkaido. However, at last, there was some sanity. Uh, Wait a minute. What are we? Oops. (coughs) So what was plan B? The Japanese didn't surrender. Uh, we're going to continue B-29 range with uh, both high-explosive and incendiary weapons on what was left of Japanese cities. More plutonium weapons were coming. <coughs> seems to be a bit of mythology that these two bombs were the only ones the Americans had. Not quite correct. There's another one coming on August the 24th. Three more in September. Seven more by December, which would have obviously done a huge amount of damage. Uh, General Groves was of the opinion that we will save up two or three of them and drop more on the same day. That'll they'll show them we're serious. Uh, don't mess with General Groves. Now, It's not clear if President Truman would approve the US. He'd become very, very uh, nervous with all the women and children being killed, which is unavoidable. Uh, he, was, he was getting a little cold feet, but I, we don't know what would happen there. However, the food situation in Japan was becoming dire By the winter, I was expecting starvation would set in. Mass social rebellion was expected by about the same time. The Russian forces will continue to take more ground in Manchuria and eventually invade the northern island of Japan, Hokkaido. However, luckily, Emperor Hirohito, who is really just a figurehead, uh, has no say in the matter, but his, he's regarded as a divine ruler. Okay. He did broadcast to his 100 million subjects for the first time ever, first time he had ever spoken to any of them, as he was sort well, of like the divine god ruler. He's made what I think is the understatement of the ever since we crawled out of the swamp. Despite the best that has been done by everyone, the war situation has developed not necessarily to Japan's advantage, while the general trends of the world have all turned <coughs> against her interests. Really, <laughs> seems a little uh, a bit of an understatement. However, that was the end of it, and they did duly surrender. I don't really have, um, if you ever listen get a chance you can you can find it on the internet these days you can actually hear the speech which went on a bit more beyond that but it was all all to do with um, I'm so sorry the Japanese people have put up with so much pain and anguish and, uh, and none of it's our fault and really it's all been it's all been jolly unfair really but he speaks in a very very high squeaky little voice so it's quite although I I can't understand the Japanese but it's um, yeah, so the, the war situation is not developed to our advantage. Fair enough. Incidentally, in the whole speech, he didn't use the word surrender once. Didn't even hint to it. <coughs> so, was it right? We don't know. And you've all got your own opinion. And you'll be aware, no doubt, this is extremely controversial uh, amongst some <coughs> parts of the uh, society some people think it's the most evil thing that's ever been produced Um, my own view is it was unfortunate but given the other options it probably actually saved a lot of lives and terminated the war quite quickly However, you've got your own opinions so that's Hiroshima today, I took that picture a couple of months ago you can see that uh, the building there that was the industrial, ha- that, sorry, the hall of industrial promotion it's, um, it's pretty damaged but it's, it's got a big fence around it now and that's Hiroshima city in the background it's a very pretty city these days uh, it's, it's nice and it, um, if you get a chance I'd recommend you go there it's, uh, what, what we found uh, even though we spoke I think I spoke one word of Japanese Konichiwa is that right? <laughs> The um, (coughs) Japanese people didn't speak much English, but they were unfailingly helpful, friendly, and polite. And you just, they're lovely people. We had a great time there. You wonder what made them. You hold the question to the end? The question
3: was is there any residual radiation
2: in that area? No, Uh, tiny, Uh, unmeasurable. No, it's not. It, It was a clean bomb. It went off quite high. It went off at about 1,800 feet, so it didn't generate a lot of radioactive material. there's no doubt the neutron and the gamma radiation were fatal out to out to about uh, seven or eight hundred meters. If you you would be dead, very, either instantly or very quickly, uh, and that's of course the heat and the blast to get you as well. Uh, so yeah, the Japanese people are lovely these days. You just wonder what what made them lose their way. I don't know. Anyway, so that's, uh, that's Hiroshima today, lovely place. We also, uh, a couple of years ago, we went to the Trinity site. That was out in the middle of New Mexico, from miles from anywhere. It only open twice a year, first Saturday in April and the first Saturday in October. <coughs> it's in, the reason for that is it's still mildly radioactive, and also it's in the White Sands Missile Range, so it's still U.S. Department of Defence Territory. It's still a little bit radioactive. There's lots of trinitite. Trinitite is this green sort of glass almost. When the, the trial fat man was set off the, the fireball touched the ground and it melted the sand into something resembling glass and that's it there. It's it's not very well you can hold it for a little while but you want to put it back. It's still a little radioactive. <coughs> that's where it is. That's the state of New Mexico. You can see it's almost a perfect square. It's about 15% bigger than New Zealand. There's Santa Fe a very pretty city. Uh, There's the Trinity site, miles from anywhere. It's about four hours away from Santa Fe. Out here is the Los Alamos Laboratory. That's where a lot of the final uh, bomb research, development and manufacture and final assembly took place. Uh, it's uh, It's still in some ways a closed city even though large parts of it are open, it's still the home of the the Sandia National Labs which do a lot of atomic research, not only for weapons, but for a lot of peaceful purposes as well, including medical and a whole bunch of other stuff. That's quite an interesting place. Ah, there's another missing graphic. There's not much to see at the Trinity site. There's this stone obelisk which says this is the first place in the world an atomic bomb was ever set off, basically. Uh, there was a picture missing in the middle, uh, which is a real shame, because it's a picture of me holding a Geiger counter, checking out a bit of uranium, and Diane Lennox, in the middle there, she's absolutely fascinated by it, so it's pity it's missing. However, don't steal the Trinitite. It's considered U.S. government property. Apart from that, you probably wouldn't want to steal it. It's mildly radioactive, pretty safe to carry around for a little bit, but you wouldn't want to keep it in your back pocket for six months, quite hazardous. Okay and of course, uh, they, every year they roll out um, an empty casing of fat man, that was an original casing, it's had what they call the physics package has been removed,
3: <laughs>
2: so it's just an empty shell these days, it's, pretty safe. it's quite large, it's, uh, it's you know, the, uh, another slide I've got is a picture of a man standing, it's about the same height. Okay, so that's uh, <coughs> an interesting visit to the Trinity site. Uh, you'd never want to do it twice, but it's interesting to do it once in your life because it takes a fair bit of planning and uh, a lot of time to get there. However, when I was working at Command, we, had a, we were members of a thing called the American Helicopter Society and every month they have a, um, a beer and pizza and they bring along a speaker of some, some renown. And this time they brought along uh, none other than Paul Tibbets. He was the pilot of the older gay which dropped that bomb. That picture was taken immediately after he got back from Hiroshima. He looks awfully happy. And this picture was taken. That was taken about a year before he gave us a talk at this American Helicopter Society meeting. Uh, very, very sprightly. He was about 84 at the time, and you'd think he's a 60-year-old. Very, very. Uh, very energetic gentleman. With him was uh, Tom Fairby, who was the bombardier. Uh, he was quite frail and in the fact he died a little time later. But there was a couple of interesting things. He, he showed us um, some slides that had never been seen, or at least not published or anything before. Uh, he All the practicing they did, which I, I should have realised, but I never did. Okay, okay. I've got two minutes left. All the practising they did, they did a huge amount of practising with dummy bombs, which had the same ballistics as, uh, as the real thing. And it was all done away out in the middle of nowhere in the Utah desert. It was all premised around dropping the bomb in Berlin. That was the target. Okay? However, on the 9th, was it was the 9th of April 1945, the Germans went and surrendered. So it was a case of, well, who else is who's left now? So they changed uh, rather quickly to... Um, to a Japanese target. The other thing that was interesting, he said, oh, <clears throat> you may have heard this yourself, he said, oh, so many people have said that after I dropped the bomb, I went mad and I committed suicide, I became an alcoholic, I, and my life was hell, I, he said, of that's true, <coughs> excuse me, he said, if, a, if I had a dollar for every time I'd heard that, I'd be a really rich man. Um, however, it's true that the pilot, where things get a little conflated and mixed up, the pilot of the uh, boxcar, which is the second aircraft dropping the bomb on Nagasaki, it was a fellow called Claude Italy. and he had an alcohol problem, and he had an alcohol problem before he dropped the bomb. He had a much bigger alcohol problem after that. He, uh, he faded away into obscurity, and I think he became a used car salesman before he died about 10, 15 years later. So, uh, but uh, nobody suggests it was the atomic bomb that did that. It was more just the, um, just the plain old bottle that did it in his case. But Tibbetts was a, a very interesting and, and a good speaker. So that's about it. Uh, we've covered an awful lot of ground, in a short period of time, and I've taken an awful lot of liberties and left the stuff out. But have you got any questions? We've got time for a few questions now. Dad served in the
3: Navy World War II Pacific. Uh-huh. Uh,
2: right until the day he died, he said they did the
3: right thing. Otherwise, he wouldn't have made yeah. Just Yeah.
2: Good. Yep. He, he took the um, j Force troops to you no-save. Know, oh, yeah. We are all responsible. We took them home and they don't quite know. Okay. Not what the damage was done then. Mm. Any questions? Uh, just as James, basically, others... Uh, Sorry, I... I so, I uh, There's a really Good. interesting documentary on, uh, uh, on YouTube. It's from 1995. It's an ABC special with Peter Jennings. That's called uh, Hiroshima, Why the Bomb Was Dropped. Uh, and that's probably about the most in there. Sorry, I'm still missing. Yeah, that's probably really, about the most in there. Can the microphone? Yeah. can I do? Oh, basically. Uh, uh,
0: just documentary here, uh, Peter Jennings, where you probably recognize the name. Uh,
3: it's probably about the most in-depth uh, analysis okay. that uh, I've ever seen on it, so it was uh, uh, over the political
2: part of the time, uh, the actual okay. people, so it might be worth uh, okay. yeah. it. I've, I've just, for a number of reasons, I've sort of stumbled into this over the years. The, um, if you're interested, the best book is, this is mm. a, a Grand Bible of them all, by a fellow called uh, Richard Rhodes The Making of the Atomic Bomb been two issues of this, this is the second one uh, it's uh, quite interesting but if you um, if you read the bibliography in that you'll find there's about I think there's over 120 books been written on the subject so there's no shortage of source material No questions? I
3: was going to say that my dad was, what, he from, he a few weeks oh, ago he was only a few weeks away from being sent to Japan the okay. He was in the and, and, in the and okay. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, the he on Sumatra. Okay. Or the sent we'll to Japan. to it. about a dangerous part of the world, after he problem, he <coughs> the L-. after the the but the
2: Um, the Japanese had a plan, and it was carried out in some cases, of course, to, to execute every Allied prisoner of war. And there was large numbers of prisoners of war executed in the last last couple of months. In fact, there was a, a uh, I think it was about 24 or 25 Americans were, were beheaded immediately after Nagasaki. It might have even been after the surrender, I can't recall now. So, yeah, you're probably lucky to be here. This
3: as a comment. I went to the Philippines a couple of years ago, and I went to the American uh, Memorial
2: outside Manila. I commented about the hundred thousand people killed,
3: and it's actually unbelievable. They've got walls and walls of um, memorials and plaques of Americans who were killed. Um, painting in the And in fact, the dare the sheer number of, of uh, people who were killed in this island popping exercise. And yeah. I fully agree that there would have been, you know, seven figures so many people killed if they had tried to invade Japan, that would have be been a cutter blood the, cut of uh-huh. the uh,
2: experience of Iwo Jima is very illuminating. Iwo Jima was one of the last islands before they they dropped the bomb Um, there was, I don't know, I can't remember how many US Marines took part in Iwo Jima but uh, there was, I think there was approximately 5,000 killed but more interestingly there was uh, about 27, 28,000 Japanese on Iwo Jima Uh, 99% were military, there were also some civilians and out of that 27,000 there was about 200 who survived an awful lot were killed but masses of them committed suicide, there was thousands, there was some, at the top of the island there were some high cliffs going down to rocks, hundreds and hundreds, thousands jumped off that, uh, it's a, it was a Japanese culture that, uh, and the Bushido, you know, the Knights of the Bushido and all the, all the cultures, to be taken prisoner is the worst thing on the planet, so you have to kill yourself. So, you know, you can easily make the case that dropping these two bombs and killing, we think, round about uh, 120, 130,000 Japanese was a good deal. Yes.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Well, thanks very much, Gary.
0: That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.